Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. My guest today is David DeSalt, an entrepreneur, CEO, startup investor, and educator. He leads a values-driven company called P1 Ventures with an aspiring vision to revitalize American manufacturing through entrepreneurship. Welcome, David. Oh, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Well, I love that uh, that quote, that phrase about your vision. How do you actually revitalize manufacturing through entrepreneurship? We don't think of entrepreneurship so much and manufacturing in the same sentence. Well, I think I think you've nailed exactly you know what we're trying to accomplish here. Is when you think about manufacturing, manufacturing has this uh, traditional illustration in people's minds of dirt floors, lights hanging from the ceiling, kind of an archaic industry that you know once had its glory days in the United States back in the Industrial Revolution and beyond in post-World War II. Uh, but in reality, we, 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 when I started the company almost 11 years ago, uh, you know, my heritage and my background come from a manufacturing background, so, you know, dating back to 1908. And we wanted to infuse manufacturing with the innovation excitement uh, of entrepreneurship. And and that's kind of where that statement came from is, you know, American manufacturing has been on decline for many, many decades. I mean, going back to the 1980s and the, the, the big outsourcing and low-cost country movements to China, India, and other parts of the world really put a, a, a big impact on certain portions of the country. But from our perspective, the folks that can actually produce components and parts with machine tools and software, engineering know-how and experience and so forth is a pretty special skill set. And we wanted to build a manufacturing platform uh, that gave those folks an ability to use their skills to solve problems for big companies around the world. And that's where that vision kind of emerged from is that we wanted to take the approach of revitalizing American manufacturing. And what does that actually mean? From our perspective, it means, first and foremost, hiring the next generation, millennials and beyond, and getting them excited about a manufacturing career and giving them skills with software and machine tools and process development and everything else that allows them to build a thriving and profitable career. That's for, and second, and, and, and just as important, is employing or investing in state-of-the-art technologies that make our country, our nation, and our smaller manufacturing businesses highly competitive against the world's manufacturing businesses. You know, whereas China and India and the BRIC nations traditionally rely on low labor costs, you know, we want to rely on technology and innovation and entrepreneurship to be very competitive and not just low labor costs. So that's kind of where we define the whole revitalizing American manufacturing through entrepreneurship is to try to take a once dominant industry and make it sexy and innovative again, and to draw on young people to really want to, you know, prefer it and, and build a career in it. Okay, so that that all sounds great, but also sounds incredibly difficult and somewhat risky in this uh, traditional industry of manufacturing. So you say uh, it's about hiring millennials, uh, which brings some risk uh, by itself. As you know, Uh, we talk about investing in new technologies, which is not always an easy thing to do in the manufacturing sector. So uh, from vision to reality, how challenging has it been to do the kinds of things that you guys are intending to do? Yeah, you know, it's definitely a long-term play. When When we first started the company in 06, uh, you know, we, we hired whoever we could hire 
that had some mechanical dexterity and other technical skills that we could utilize to you know, service our customers and so forth. Um, but we made a very intentional decision back in 0809 to align ourselves with a local community college that had an advanced manufacturing program. Uh, and they were obviously, uh, you know, producing 30 to 40 graduates every year in the machine tool trade, you know, advanced manufacturing trade, engineering, 3D printing, that kind of stuff. So we went to them and said, look, we want to invest in your program. We want to hire a significant portion of your graduates uh, each and every year. So over the course of the next five or six years, we ended up hiring over 35 or 40 of their people as they were graduating at like 19, 20, 21 years old. So we started putting a long-term approach in place knowing that we would hire folks that were young and green out of school and then we'd have to make a long-term investment in their development. Uh, so there's, you know, obviously there's some bumpy years when you do that. You're gonna have increased scrap rates, you're gonna have decreased productivity as those folks are coming on board and learning and growing within the company. But that started to pay off because if you look at our, 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 our company today, we're nearly 100 employees. And over 65% of our employees are under the age of 30. So we're in the pro- you know, we're starting to really benefit from that strategy that we've put in place many years ago. Uh, but again, as you said, it's risky, right? I mean, when you take a long-term approach, you know, you have to forego short-term and near-term profitability and productivity in order to get to that long-term place. And we've we've been very very successful in building that kind of workforce. And second to that, you know, we've invested over $10 million in the last 11 years into uh, high-tech machinery and equipment and process development. Again, another long-term approach to putting infrastructure and foundations in place to be able to compete on a, on a, on a global scale. And we compete quite well today, and we've grown pretty dramatically over the last 10 years. So I think some of those strategies are, are paying dividends today. And if I remember from talking to you that you really want to build a multi-generational business here, uh, one of the things that you're known for, you guys have been an award-winning culture. Uh, cultures, I'm sure, very important, particularly to that younger millennial audience. What are the kinds of things that you guys have done to build a, a unique culture at P1? Yeah, it's a great question. So, uh, you know, I, t- I tell a little bit about the story. I did it during the, um, the Forbes conference, you know, about t- three years ago, really making the intentional decision to uh, understand and learn about what are some of the cultural influences from other companies and other industries like the tech industry uh, that are drawn in young people and, and, and sustaining their employment levels and engaging them and growing them that we can use in our industry. So that's, you know, the, the, the journey we started architecting and blueprinting was to really become a values-driven business and to live out those values, uh, to, be, to have a, cast a really aspirational yet unachievable uh, you know, directional vision statement like revitalizing American manufacturing, uh, and to put incentives and structure in place inside the company to reinforce our values and the type of people that we want to hire. You know, a good example of that is uh, living out our values in, in May and June. We did a, a small downsizing of our workforce for no other reason but to prune and, and, and reduce the folks that didn't fit our business culturally. Uh, and we also did it in alignment with, you know, reducing some of our uh, more commoditized product lines and, 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 and services that we supply to our customers. But that is necessary to reinforcing our values and our cultures is to also remove folks that just don't fit the culture or the values of our business. So the interesting uh, dynamic or output of that is we have very, very high retention rates. You know, we're, we've only lost three people who left on their own in 10 years, 10 plus years. And that to me is testament of building a strong values-based culture 
with an aspirational vision and putting our money where our mouth was in terms of reinforcing those things. And I think that's become an incredible um, uh, you know, drawing for young people who want to go into the manufacturing trade is to call us up and say, I want to work for you guys because here's what I'm hearing about, about the values and vision. Well, I think that's a tremendous record that you have of uh, employee attrition and speaks to some of the success and growth that you've had over the years. You've had uh, uh, a, a great track record, and, and the vision that you've created is wonderful. You've got really positive growth. Uh, it all comes from somewhere. You had a good education background. I want to kind of step back now and kind of talk more about you, David, and what got you to where you are today, what formed you into the kind of leader you are. And if you think back, can you remember the first time that you realized, I am a leader? Yeah, you know, it's a, it was pretty, a pretty clear delineation in college, right? I mean, uh, you know, I grew up in a very, very poor household. Uh, we had, you know, I had six siblings or seven children in my family. My father's a factory worker. My mother didn't work outside of the home, although she worked very hard inside of the home. Uh, so we grew up in a three-bedroom home with seven kids, uh, you know, and, and we were always working, right? I mean, my father taught us the value of hard work and integrity and making sure that we outworked everyone uh, that we were working next to. Um, and so when I came into college, I went to a, a very high-priced liberal arts private school in upstate New York called Union College. Um, and it's, it's a very expensive school. It's very hard to get into. I was very lucky to get into it. I had to work very, very hard to get into it because they initially rejected me three times. Um, but once I got into college, you know, I almost entered school with this inherent sense of insecurity. Growing up poor... And now going to school with a lot of very, very wealthy people, uh, most of the kids had their own cars, um, you know, they didn't have to work except to go to school. And I had to work through three jobs to go through college. But one of the first times I realized that I had some leadership potential is, and it's not, you know, I played sports and stuff like that, but, you know, in that traditional sense, that's not where I realized I was a leader. It was my junior year in college, and I had three roommates who, uh, you know, had come from very wealthy backgrounds. Uh, they didn't have to work very uh, very hard other than their schoolwork. And I was taking care of all the rents, the utility payments. I was managing and working with the landlord at the time. Uh, and and, and my room, one of my roommates made a comment to me that uh, maybe one day I don't have to work so hard because uh, I can be like them, this and that. And I actually stepped back and I thought for a second. I said, hold on a second. I'm the one who initiated the conversation about renting the apartment, negotiating the lease, put all the utility in my names, collecting the monies, paying the rents, being responsible and accountable to something like that. I started realizing maybe I have some leadership potential, you know, because I'm taking initiative and learning how to be accountable and responsible for things. And, and that really parlayed into uh, finally an internship that I got at General Electric, which led to further leadership potential and, and a lot of growth and development. But that's probably the first time I realized because I had to overcome that insecurity. I just had the natural inborn insecurity that I grew up poor. You know, we were less important or less had less potential than the folks that didn't grow up poor. But it was kind of that inflection point where I said, maybe I have something, maybe I have some potential because I'm taking leadership where my other roommates weren't taking leadership. That's a, a great way to start. Uh, are there other childhood experiences that may have also been formative um, in your growing as a leader? Uh, you said you grew up in this household with, with seven kids. My wife did the same thing, so I'm familiar with that dynamic of just uh, hard work, but growing growing up in a, in a really a values-driven family. 
Yeah, you know, it's 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 a you know, I, I had one of the most normal childhoods, you know, one could ask for. I mean, we, you know, my father was home every night for dinner. Uh, we had an extremely values-based uh, family. Um, you know, our, our family was very, very church-oriented. We were in church every Sunday, Sunday school. Uh, you know, since we were very, very young, we just had these values, you know, built, inborn into us that we are to work hard. We are to have integrity. We are to be honest. We are to build relationships and serve other people in those relationships. Uh, I often remember as a child growing up where my mother would bring us um, these outings through the church to serve poor people, to serve, you know, folks. We thought we were poor, but folks who had less than we had. Um, and, and there was that there was that natural progression. And I remember specifically at 13 years old coming home from a basketball game, my mother and father, uh, they were meeting with one of the ministers or whatever. And, 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 and we sat down, we were just having a conversation. And the minister looked at me and he, and he says, you know, you have great leadership potential. He goes, you know, I just, I just sense that you, you're, you're a person of action, somebody who is a high integrity individual. And that stuck with me as a kid because, you know, again, I talked about what happened in college, but that was an adult outside of my parents telling me that I had great potential in my life. And, and, and that really meant a lot to me. But, you know, my father was the kind of guy, we were, we were shoveling the driveway, we were mowing the lawns. You know, I had a lawn mowing business when I was 13, 14 years old, mowing lawns in a neighborhood. Um, you know, I really do believe that that upbringing and, and rec requirement that I had to work, and I had to work for everything that we've had and everything that I had to earn, really started shaping as a young child my work ethic, my integrity, and my my ability to become a leader to do something significant. I'm a big believer that servant leaders are highly effective leaders, and I think that that was really well ingrained when I was a child. You know, what's really nice is to hear how you were doing work to serve others at a time when you guys didn't have a lot yourselves. Uh, I think about just this week, my daughter is on her first mission trip uh, in another city helping uh, paint homes of elderly. And it's a wonderful experience for her. And, and growing up with what we have, we're very focused on making sure she realizes that uh, the world is, is maybe quite different from the little bubble we've grown up in. And we want her to, to experience that. You grew up uh, where you didn't have a lot to begin with, and yet it was grained in you early on that serving others was important. That's pretty special. Yeah, I, I thank you for that. And, you know, we I've done a lot of that also as an adult. We can get to that later if you'd like. Yeah. Uh, any other jobs along the way uh, that, that proved significant in your development as a leader? Yeah, so two in particular that stick out when I was young. Um, you know, when I was 14 years old, uh, my grandfather, uh, he was a hardworking Italian man, um, had a good friend that, that ran a, a stone and um, uh, a pool business. And my, my grandfather, I played football, so my grandfather says, you know, over the course of the summer, you're going to learn how to, how to work hard uh, with your hands and, and, and to really kind of be the lowest guy on the, on the totem pole. So I took a job with this gentleman. Uh, and, you know, my first job, we were building a retaining wall for uh, an ice cream business that, was, that had a pool in place. And my first job was to unload the truck of all the stone. And, you know, it was like an eight to 10 hour ordeal. Uh, and in that summer... I worked harder than I had ever worked in my life for very little money. Uh, I mean, I, I don't remember if it was maybe four or five bucks an hour at the time, um, but but you know that job forced me to understand that the the lowest level person on the job site 
was just as essential as the guy doing the meaningful work of laying the block and a stone and doing the design work and so forth. And I'll never forget the first day I came home, I wanted to quit. And my, my mother and father says, you can't quit. My grandfather came over and says, you are not quitting. You're putting my name on the line. My reputation's on the line. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna, you're gonna stand and, and do this. So that whole summer, I worked that job in addition to shoveling manure for my grandfather because he had a, big, he had a, like a smaller farm garden. Um, and, and so I just remember those types of jobs gave me a high level of respect for people that regardless where I was in my own life, that would respect folks doing those types of jobs. And when, fast forward like 15 years, I, when I was working at General Electric, I'll never forget one of the mentors, he was the vice president of the company at the time, made a comment to me. He says, you know, I've never met a young man who can talk to the janitor with such high levels of respect, integrity, uh, with their language, and then turn around and give a pitch to a vice president of the company in the same breath. And I think that those experiences uh, really help shape uh, me as a leader is to respect and honor everybody, regardless of position in life. Um, and, and because I did those jobs myself. And the second job that helped me do that is I worked for five years at Price Chopper, which is a local supermarket. And I started as a cart boy. And I had to go from cart boy to bag boy to uh, register boy to you know handling the bottle returns to the grocery department, to the backdoor buyer. And I remember working myself all the way up as far as I can go in the store uh, as a young man without a college education. And again, having a level of respect for every role in that organization, regardless of how low level they, they, they look to be. Yeah, that's really an important uh, learning that people at all levels of the organization are just as important as the other. And uh, I remember growing up, my, my dad was a lawyer and uh, I was always so inspired by how hard he worked. And the reason I, I knew that was not that I was at with him at work every day, but he would bring home these files. And regardless of whether the TV was on or anything else was going on, he had this set of files sitting next to him on the couch and he was always reviewing something and working hard. But then I went to work for my uncle who had a food processing plant. And I saw what these guys were doing, just moving bags around and, and, and rolling pallets across the factory floor and uh, working for hours without uh, a break and, to, and looking forward to lunch coming and just said, okay, this is hard work. And I gained an appreciation for uh, all, whether you're a professional, blue collar worker, whatever it is, frontline or a VP of an organization, uh, no one is more important than another. And, and you got that experience early on. Yeah. Um, can you think of a a time where you learn something maybe from an unexpected person or at an unexpected place. Yeah, I've got a great story. Uh, and this happened just this past winter. So it's a very, it's a relevant story in terms of timing. Um, so I was coaching my sons, my 12 year old sons, uh, rec league basketball team. And, uh, you know, there was about 10 or 11 kids on the team, which is actually too many for a small team like that. But there was this young man on the team named Matt Shaw. And uh, Matt comes from a family of six. He's got you know five brothers and sisters. His father's actually the principal of our private uh, small school that my son goes to, um, and 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 just a hardworking, dedicated family. You could just tell that they're a very values based family, very very dedicated to integrity and so forth. And so Matt was the star of the team. I mean, he was by and far. I mean, leaps and bounds beyond anyone else on the team. He was the kid dropping 25, 30 points. And there was this one game in April this year 
where, uh, and again, it's rec league for 12 year olds. So it's not like the NBA, but it was important to us. And, and it, we, we had to win this game to get into the playoffs and we're down by seven with a few minutes to go. And Matt literally just like takes the team on his shoulders and goes like on a 14 0 run. And we end up winning by seven. Uh, I mean, you know, he hit a couple threes. He's playing great defense, had a couple steals, good assists, uh, ended up hitting a couple of foul shots that were really critical. And we won the game. And uh, we, you know, everyone goes to the center of the floor. The parents coming out, everyone's high fiving and everything else. And I'm looking for Matt. I'm like, where did Matt go? You know, we, the kid's the star of the game. He really, you know, lifted us above and beyond and came out. And I turn around, and Matt has a bag in his hand, and he's picking up all the garbage in the gym. Hmm. And I look at this kid, and I immediately melted. Right, I'm, here I am, a 39 year old man. You know, I'm the coach of this team. I'm supposed to be a great example to this team. And here this 12-year-old boy is picking up garbage in the gym. And I walk over to him and I said, Matt, what are you doing? And he said to me, my father's always taught me that when you're done using someone else's property, you clean it up and return it to a better condition than when you, when you actually got there. And it just blew, Paul, it blew me away that I just, in that moment, took one of the greatest leadership lessons I've had in 39 years from a 12-year-old boy who was a star of the team. And I took that, and, I, and it's funny because the very next game in the playoffs, I talked to my son about that and so forth. At the end of that game, the next game, we actually lost the game. The kids all stepped up and did exactly as Matt did. We're cleaning the gym, organizing things at the end of the game, uh, you know, which to me was an incredible leadership lesson in humility, in respecting other people's properties. And I actually wrote a blog post on it because I was just so blown away that I learned a lesson of humble leadership from a 12 year old boy, uh, on that day, which was incredibly humbling myself. Yeah. And, uh, what a great lesson for your son as well. I agree. And it's, it was an incredible lesson for all of us. Matter of fact, I went, I, I had, I took his father for breakfast a few days later and I said to Mike, his name is Mike. I said, Mike, I said, you have six children. Um, one of which is in college ready, but I said, based on Matt's, um, you know, what he did during that game and his character, I said, I would hire any of your kids uninterviewed and I actually hired one of them this summer. So we actually took his daughter and we put her into a sales position because I said, if you can create that level of integrity and work ethic and 12 year old boy, um, I would be privileged to have any of your children work for me because of that character elements. Wow. That's amazing. He's breeding good ones, huh? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, incredible. Can you think of uh, maybe a more even emotional event that uh, that shaped you early on or maybe more recently yeah that's uh you know that's a good question um you know i often go back to my father you know my dad so in my father's relevant to the, the company i run today right so i already talked about you know really understanding and treating everyone every level of the organization with the same level of respect and especially in the manufacturing business you know, we're not working with all white collar people, right? So we have blue collar people. Uh, I call them working class people. Um, you know, folks that we have folks that clean the factory, that run equipment, all the way up to myself and the CFO and everything else. Um, you know, but my father's helped shape a lot of that approach to how I respect and honor people. And so when my father, when we were younger, again, I talked about growing up poor and really not having a lot of, um, you know, material goods or anything else, but I had a great father. My father was, and I had a great mother too. And they were both very present in my life, very invested in my well-being, uh, really shaped who I am today. But my father going through multiple layoffs when I was a child, we had to move every single time he was laid off. And I think it was four times through the eighties and early nineties. 
And I just remember always having to get up and move again and move again. I think we moved a total of through my childhood maybe six times before that were specifically related to him being laid off. Um, and those were very emotional times for us because not only did we grow up in a very poor situation, uh, but you know, having to move consistently just created instability in, in my own mind about what home was like and you know where we put our roots down and so forth. So that those emotional time, you know, the, the timelines of those emotions and stuff really shaped how I approach hiring people, keeping people, investing in people. Because one of my philosophies in life, I have two philosophies that I, I always say I'll always treat others as I want to be treated, regardless of role in the company. And number two. I will always sacrifice first before I'm willing to uh, eliminate a job or take someone else's ability to earn away from them because of those emotional experiences of the child. So th- those are two. Th- those are things that really shaped my approach to leadership today, and, and probably has a lot to do with our retention rate. It doesn't mean that we don't get rid of people for performance issues or lack of cultural fit, but I'll never remove somebody if I can sacrifice first based on a slowdown in business or other thing, because, and that's why we're a small giant, right? If you think about it, we're taking that approach to building community and building a, um, a family versus just building a profit-driven enterprise. So let me let me ask you another question about that. When you say uh, it'll be important to sacrifice first before, for example, letting somebody go, uh, can you, do you have an example of that? And, and what do you mean by sacrificing first? Yeah, so uh, we've had two slowdowns in our business over the last 11 years, um, obviously one being the big recession in 08-09. Um, and, and, and what I've done in, in both those cases is instead of laying people off, um, I've reduced my pay to zero. I went almost seven months without pay in 2010. Um, you, know, you know, I live on my savings. I live on other things. And I always reduce the pay of everyone in leadership uh, before impacting anyone in the direct, direct labor ranks. Uh, and so we've done that twice. We've actually carried that process out twice that we will sacrifice our well-being in the near term so we don't have to sacrifice people's careers and jobs in that near term if we have a slowdown or recession. Um, so, so that's a good example of really trying to first sacrifice myself versus trying to have to sacrifice other people's livelihood. Yeah. And my, it did not put an impact on their lives so they can continue to thrive. And, and look, with all, you know, in all honesty, I'm pretty well off. I can weather those storms, um, but again, it's having a long-term mindset of yeah, I can sacrifice financially for a year or so, so other people don't lose their jobs. Well, no wonder your attrition rate is so low. Your voluntary attrition um, seems like a, an incredible place to work. So let's let's get a little bit more current about uh, your experience as a leader now. Uh, you know, it hasn't always been positive. You've been through some rough times. Can you think of a, a humbling experience you've had in your role as a leader? Yeah. So coming out of in 2004, I left General Electric. Um, I had this passion and desire to start my own company. Uh, didn't didn't quite know what I wanted to do. So I, I was rising pretty fast at GE. I, I graduated off one of their management training programs, uh, which was very very difficult to get onto. Uh, I, I graduated top of my class. Uh, from that program in 2002, I had progressively uh, increasing roles and responsibilities. Uh, my last job there, I was 26. 
Uh, I had over 300 employees reporting into me. I was running a billion dollar plant for them. Um, and, and, and my income had more than doubled in like an 18 month period of time. So they were investing in me. Uh, they were paying for my masters and so forth. But I just had this unyearning or this yearning passion and desire to start my own company, which was really cemented when I went on a missions trip to build orphan homes in South Africa in 2003. And, and so when I left the company, you know, I had this, I, I just had this natural instinct that I was going to be successful running my own business. But in 2004, we purchased a company uh, with private equity money. Um, and, and, and that deal kind of fell on my lap. It wasn't something I went and sought after. There was just a potential opportunity of a bankrupt company that came out. Uh, really worked my networking relationships to identify some private equity money. And, um, and that company was in my hometown. So it was a very big ordeal for me. Now, remember, we're a poor. Uh, this is this is my my moment, right? Left General Electric, went out on my own, raised four million bucks to buy this bankrupt business. And and the whole community like was behind me. They're like, wow, Dave, this is fantastic. You know, you're accomplishing. We hired 120 people in the first 18 months. We were growing like crazy. Um, and it all imploded. And this was in 2006. It was probably the lowest point of my personal and professional life because it was this high uh, potential opportunity, had a lot of um, you know, press, had a lot of uh, transparency to the community, and it was really my moment. And we wrote it pretty fast and hard, and the company literally imploded in 2006, and we ended up selling it off um, at auction and stuff later that year. And, you know, I went into a deep depression for about a month and it was, it, it really, cause you know, you, at 26 years old, you, you go from, you know, doing really well at GE to riding this quick wave of growth and, and, and with a private equity company, you're like the golden child, you know, everyone's complimenting to you. There's, you know, there's all these press releases and stories and articles in your hometown, people looking up to you and you can almost have a set of arrogance that steps in. And says, you know, I'm untouchable. You know, this is this is this is who I am. I get the Midas touch. And when it all imploded, it just depressed me for a full month, um, and it was embarrassing. I mean, it was it was pretty high profile. And I remember laying on that couch for that month, literally couldn't get up, just depressed to a point where I was physical and physically incapable of getting out of bed, and um, and really had to regenerate that passion and yearning to want to be an entrepreneur. And ended up starting a company, which is what I run today, shortly thereafter. And it's funny because I, I just read a book called The Wright Brothers by David McCulloch. And there's a great statement in there where Wilbur, Wilbur Wright is writing in his journal about their first time at Kitty Hawk. And one of the statements in his journal is, no bird soars in the calm. And looking back and reflecting on that time, that was a necessary humbling that I needed to go through that gave me the position and foundation to build the company we have today. And I had to go through that tumultuous time and that the, the heavy gusts of wind and all the headwinds that hit me in order to really develop that mentality and that perspective. So that was a humbling experience. You couldn't even imagine how hard that was for me to go through. Well, coming from uh, the big company work at GE and then thrown into, uh, even though it was a dream of yours, this entrepreneurial world, uh, it's probably not all that shocking that, that this was the result. Uh, and, uh, and it's probably something that you needed to go through to understand what it really meant to be an entrepreneur um, and, and learn about leadership as well. And, and uh, although I'm sure that was a very low point for, for that month, uh, 
it was just a month. <laughs> it seems like, wow, you know, you came out of that pretty quickly and, and used what you learned to say, you know, to get back up fairly quickly. Uh, I know it's easier than it said now than it was back then. Um, <laughs> but to, to start again with the, the company that you've built now and to take what you learned during that experience and build now what has become a, a very successful company. So I'd say that's a pretty, uh, pretty good track record. Um, as you think about this really kind of sensitive culture that you have built and the fact that you have been through a couple rough patches, there's got to been a time when you had to make a really tough decision in the workplace. Um, can you give us an example of one of those? Yeah. Um, boy, tough decisions. Um, you know, there, there was one, one gentleman who, when we, when I started the company, I started the company in October of 06, we started hiring employees in March of 07. And there was this group of four employees that, that kind of came along for the ride. I mean, fundamentally a startup, they were technical employees. They're very, very critical to the mission of the company, what we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, th th those four employees almost became like my co-founders, uh, and, you know, in essence, because they, they're the first ones that took the risk with me. They, they, they left jobs that were more stable. They had careers going. And they believed in the vision that we had as a company, what we were trying to accomplish. And, you know, a couple of years into it, one of those four who probably was the most skilled of the four in terms of his technical capabilities in the business really just wasn't a cultural fit for where we wanted to go. And, and, and if you know anything about our company, we really celebrate that founding time, right? And those four employees were highly celebrated as, you know, kind of the founding four, the, the ones that helped, you know, take the vision and bring it to reality. And they were so vital to the beginning years to getting the business off the ground. Um, but that, he, this person just wasn't a fit culturally. Uh, they weren't the hardest working person. Uh, they were very smart, very, very capable. But quickly over those couple of years, didn't you know? Kind of became the outlier in terms of our culture, and and it may not seem like a tough decision now, but going back to that time, we were still a relatively young company, and and these folks were kind of the the fo folks everyone looked up to. I had to let that person go to to reinforce who we were as a company, and that was a very early stake in the ground that this is who we are, this is what we stand for, and regardless of who you are, how long you've been here. If you're not willing to adhere to the to the values and, and the culture, and at the time we didn't even have a well-defined culture in terms of being it written down, but there was a natural culture that was kind of driven by myself and a couple of those folks. And and that was a tough decision that and it kind of made everyone in the organization at the time kind of gasp and say, Well, you know, what's happening here? How did this happen? Uh, but it ended up being one of the best decisions we made because it really gave a beacon. Uh, light to everyone to say that behavior is unacceptable in this culture, uh, and I think that that probably put us on a trajectory of of of, of really building a business that was values based. Which you know, three years ago we started documenting that and putting the, you know the intentions behind it. But that was kind of the starting point to really put us on a trajectory of, of, of attracting the right people and, and building that performance based culture that we do have. Yeah, I can totally relate to that uh, that kind of decision and uh, how tough that is when you're first starting and you've got what appear to be uh, three or four partners, regardless of title or ownership um, in the, in the business that started it together. And you're put in the position of letting somebody like that go that had been so heart wrenching for you. And it seems almost more valuable as a story told uh, in retrospect uh, to people that 
are now part of the company. And I love the the thought that that you spend a lot of time celebrating and talking about where you came from. I think that's something that um, is a lost uh, jewel in the in the history of companies because we don't spend enough time. We just say, you know, here's your computer and phone and and good luck or or whatever it is in manufacturing. Here's your your toolbox as opposed to saying, here's what you're a part of. Here's where we came from. Here's why we do what we do. Uh, so the fact that you reflect back on that story, I think, is really important. Yeah. Um, so so. David, with all of the success that you've had and, and the momentum that you're uh, riding now, you said that uh, uh, early on you you had some some successes through uh, GE and others where some kind of arrogance could have been built in. But today, as you've uh, been through these ups and downs, how do you remain authentic as a leader to those around you? One, one thing that I always preach to others is we have to have extreme self-awareness you know, of who we are. And it goes back to the stories I've been telling a little bit about of, of understanding and reflecting on that everyone's important. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a very I'm, – I'm a Christian man. I do believe in uh, serving others. I believe that we're all imperfect. Um, I believe that we have to work every day at being a better version of ourselves. And I think a lot of that comes down to humility and self-awareness. And, you know, one of the things that I'm always very, very um, open and transparent about is the fact that I'm an imperfect leader. Um, and, and I have no problem. One of the things I've never had an issue with, thank God, is I have, I've never had a problem admitting fault, admitting failure in terms of making a bad decision and asking for forgiveness, even from employees. Um, there's been times where I might make a bad decision or, or, um, or, or, or decide something that is contrary to what the team wants to do or, or something that may not end someone's career, but impact them negatively in the near term financially. And in some cases, in a lot of cases, those decisions aren't the right decisions. And, you know, in terms of being self-aware, you have to recognize when you make a bad decision or, or when, when, when you've done something or may did something that hurt someone else and you got to be willing to step up and say, Hey, I made a bad call here. You know, I'm an imperfect person, you know, please forgive me for that. And let's learn from it and figure out how we can go forward. And I think that that has been probably the greatest attribute. Uh, and it almost sounds like boasting when I talk about it. So it almost feels unnatural to talk about that, that element of myself. But I've always had this self-awareness that I am not perfect. I, I, I am a faulty, failed person that constantly has to work at getting better as a human being and how I treat others and everything else. And that natural awareness in my own self has always allowed me to be completely transparent with other people and to admit when I'm wrong and to ask for forgiveness for people, even if there's someone who works directly for me or might be multiple layers down in the organization. Um, so I, I, you know, and I often tell people I'm shocked and amazed sometimes at people's lack of self-awareness, um, where people, you know, and this, is, this isn't a generic comment because it's not true for everyone. I can almost write a book on the psychology of employment because, the most difficult employees, the most difficult people to work with, in my opinion, aren't even the arrogant people, right? I can deal with arrogance to a certain degree, but it's people that just aren't self-aware of their own shortcomings and the fact that they are supposed to be working at a sense of community and building relationships with others and having a transparent and authentic relationship with others. That pisses me off and really irks me in a pretty significant way. And that's why I work aggressively hard at being completely self-aware and being humble in a way to to reflect that self awareness to others in a transparent manner. So I, I, 
it has a lot to do with remaining accessible, that people don't feel like they can't come to me, that'll be judgmental or that I'm going to, you know, you know, override them or, or to kind of be like a bull in a china shop with them. Well, you, you've uh, really developed um, and are still developing as a wonderful leader. And uh, if uh, it seems to me that there's um, a lot of the younger people in your company that are looking up to you. And if you had uh, somebody maybe fresh out of school that was starting out his or her career and said, David, I just want to do exactly what you do one day. I want to be like you. What kind of advice would you offer them? I think that if people want to achieve anything in life, whether it's in athletics or being an entrepreneur or starting a company, I think they need to surround themselves with great people. Um, and, and, and I know that sounds like a cliche, but uh, I'm talking about you know the right teammates that believe in them, that you know can get behind their vision, that are going to go into the trenches with them and are willing to sacrifice alongside with them. Mentors, and I often tell this to people because mentoring is an incredibly important thing that's required in entrepreneurship. Right? Very hard to find a mentor who truly believes in you and cares for you and is willing to invest in you without understanding or desiring something in return. So if they can find somebody that truly believes in them, and I have a good friend, Lorenzo, who I've been friends with since 2001. He's older than me. He's about 15 years older than me. And if it weren't for him, I mean, aside from my wife and my family and stuff like that, he was the most encouraging, uplifting, um, supportive friend that, you know, mentor that you could ever ask for because he wanted nothing in return for me. He truly, truly, truly cared about who I was and what I was trying to accomplish in life and was willing to do anything to allow me to make that happen. And and so when you have somebody like that in your life and you have a team around you that truly believe in you and are willing to sacrifice alongside of you, I think the sky's the limit. You know, I often tell young entrepreneurs, you can never do it on your own. There's no I, and I know that's a cliche in team, there's no I in, in athletics, there's no I in, in business. You gotta have a phenomenal team around you that believe in where you're going, are willing to self-sacrifice alongside of you, and somebody older than you that's been there or somebody with world experience that just believes in you, willing to invest in you without any strings attached and without any expectation of return. Well, I think what you've talked about is really important, particularly about mentorship and and what you learned from Lorenzo. And and I'm sure you're paying that back many times over with uh, folks that you mentor that are younger and that want to learn. And and like you said, the best part is not wanting anything in return. What you get in return is this wonderful feeling that you're impacting other people's lives. And I know that's what uh, Lorenzo felt with you as well. So um, it's just wonderful to hear that you're paying that forward. Uh, so l- let me close out, David, with just a couple quick hits. Uh, this is kind of the association game where I'm just going to ask you a few questions. I want you to just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, can you name a famous leader you look up to? Abraham Lincoln. I'm a big presidential historian. Uh, I was an American history major in college. Uh, I love that Abraham Lincoln. There's a, there's a scripture in the Bible that says perseverance creates character, character creates hope. And nobody uh, that I can think of other than Abraham Lincoln, who had such perseverance in losing, I think it was six or seven of elections, stayed true to his calling, his destiny, uh, became president of the United States, issued the Emancipation Proclamation, changed the course of history. Uh, and this man endured terrible, terrible uh, personal tragedies along the way. Uh, somebody who had uh, tremendous strife in his personal life, 
and end up ultimately being killed for it. But somebody I admire to the nth degree because of his perseverance, because of his focus on doing the right thing in the midst of great trial and tribulation and personal strife. That's that's great. I was a history major too. I wish I had done more with it. Uh, all right, name a great book that influenced your leadership style. Uh, good to great. I love Jim Collins' books. Uh, he, you know, I often talk about Bo Burlingham's book being a private company version of Jim Collins' book, looking at public companies. But what I took away from Jim Collins' book, I think they were published in 01 or 02. Uh, early on, I read those books, and it really influenced my approach to culture and values in a business. Because one of the takeaways or one of the, the, the things that he kind of concluded in his books is, you know, companies that had transcendental performance above and beyond their competitors or peers are ones that believed in something beyond just making money. Um, and so those were early books that really shaped my business leadership style that when you do build something, you know, you want to build something of value that has purpose, that has destiny behind it versus just building something that's profit driven. You know, I, t- I tell the same story always. I always ask people if they read Good to Great, and then I talk about Small Giants by Bo Burlingham being kind of the small company version. So uh, I look at it the same way. And uh, yeah, Jim's, Jim's work is incredible. What's your favorite all-time movie? Saving Private Ryan. Ah, good yeah. one. Yeah. You know, fictional story based on, loosely based on uh, fact, uh, but it has a close hit to home for me because my uh, grandfather, his four brothers were in World War II. Um, they were on the same ship. They almost went down with that ship. So the thought process behind it, uh, it really kind of hits home on from a personal level. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big, big history buff when it comes to war. And, and in particular, I like World War II just because, I mean, you know, essentially between us and the Allies, we saved the world. And I love Tom Hanks. I think that that movie, the first 25 minutes of that movie is the most realistic uh, wartime uh, movie ever made in terms of what that battle ever looked like and felt like, not to mention – you know, that particular campaign on D-Day really leading to the, you know, success. And I love Band of Brothers, too, as, a, as, a, as kind of a supplement to that as well, which is a great mini-part series about the same war. Yeah, if you get a chance, you ought to look at today's Dallas Morning News. On the front page, there's a story about an 18-year-old whose grandfather was in World War II, and uh, uh, he's decided to interview as many World War II veterans as he can because they're not going to be around for very long. Yeah. And he's already found 52 veterans in, in and around, you know, the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area and he'll drive and uh, wherever. And he's in, interviewing and videotaping them and posting them on, on a YouTube channel just because he wants to be able to remember and tell these stories. Uh, pretty incredible. Um, all right. So now you, you're on a, you're stranded on an island. You get to take one thing with you. What would it be? So stranded by myself? Yep. Oh, man. Uh, the Bible. Okay. Good one. I've, uh, I think that's a common one we've heard. And uh, uh, we've talked a lot about you. You've been very transparent and genuine with us today. But is there something uh, about you that most people just don't know? Yeah. So I come across as an extremely confident individual uh, when I speak and you know, in group settings and stuff like that. But I still suffer from insecurity and anxiety. Um, you know, not to a detrimental level, but, uh, and it's funny cause when I often tell people that they're like, no way, there's not a chance. <laughs> they said, if you suffer from insecurity, then I've got no hope in life. Uh, because, you know, I do come across very confident, uh, when you speak and with other people and stuff like that, but it's a, um, you know, it's a continuous battle. You know, it's something that, you know, even in, in terms of my own self-awareness campaign is, is really reflecting on, I'm always questioning myself and, 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 and I think that roots again from my, my upbringing and, and being around other people that had more things and, and, and better, you know, education and so forth. But, um, 
yeah, I still battle that and I'm still working through it and trying to figure out how to, to overcome it in the long term. So. Well, I think ultimately that's what makes you who you are. I think that's what drives us. People, uh, when I tell people I'm an introvert, and no way, you're not an introvert. So, well, yeah, I am. And I have those same insecurities and anxiety. And uh, and and that's what pushes us. You know, sometimes we hide it well. Um, yeah. But I think that's what makes us who we are today. And um, uh, David, your story is wonderful. And, and uh, I want to wish you continued success in what you're doing. I want to kind of reflect back on some of the key points that I heard that you made uh, that I think our listeners w- need to really understand. And, and one is um, this idea of the, taking a long-term view, uh, what you've done in, in manufacturing and your vision uh, for revitalizing American manufacturing um, is something very real, hiring millennials, uh, investing in new technologies. You, you're taking a lot of risk in doing what you're doing, um, and it's paying off. And I think that's because you're not looking for the short-term gain. The idea of uh, having a values-driven business, but more importantly, a values-driven life that came from your family, growing up with a large family, came particularly from your dad and the value of hard work. And just it's simple that there's just nothing that replaces that. And if we think about why we are who we are today, it really does come from the experiences and our, our parents, how we grew up in our, our family. Um, the the What you learned from Matt um, you know, watching your son play basketball and, and the star of the game who goes and picks up trash afterwards and um, just brings you back to what's what's really important. And um, the fact that, again, you're willing to go to his dad and say, hey, I'd hire any one of your kids. The fact that that if, if we as parents can teach these basic life lessons to our kids, uh, then we're going to feel great about the impact. But more importantly, they're going to change the world as they grow up and uh, they get older. Um, The idea in your current business that not just the golden rule of do unto others, but to sacrifice first and to know that when you go through those tough times, you're going to set the example for others, Um, whether it's, you know, eliminating your salary for a while or, or making people realize that we're all in this together. And you mentioned several times things that would otherwise be cliche. Well, they're there for a reason because they mean something. And, and uh, so when we hear those kinds of terms, I think it's, it's, uh, it's really important to embrace them. Talking about celebrating the story um, and the fact that uh, this story that you've told today is not only important for enter- other entrepreneurs to hear, hear, but for your employees, that next new employee to come in and, and understand how this company was built, what you stand for, and who you are, uh, is going to continue to keep that same very low attrition level that you've had so far. And when you go through those tough times, people are going to uh, fall on the sword for you. And the last thing I think was this idea about self-awareness. Uh, and the fact that um, there are many people who are not very self-aware, uh, they do upset us sometimes. But I've also learned to uh, to try to give those people a pass and realize initially that they only know what they know. They only know from their own experiences. If they're not self-aware, then I take that as an opportunity to say, can I make them aware? Can I build a relationship with them, earn their trust, and maybe uh, create a new type of leader, someone who is aware and who then gets the impact, to feel the impact of what it's like to care about service other people and know the impact that they're having on others. So uh, 
and it just tremendous lessons learned from from you, David. And I think we're all going to enjoy listening to this. Um, I want to thank you very, very much for for joining me today. Thank you very much, Paul. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing with Purpose podcast. Until next time.